Awesome. Well, good morning again, everyone. Like I said, I am Carl Santos, senior pastor here at Redeemer, and um, it's good timing. Today we are starting uh, a brand new series in the book, or the letter, to the Colossians, and rather than preach a proper Easter sermon on the Easter story, um, I realized that the opening of this book fits very nicely with, with uh, Easter and with the resurrection, and so we're going to do just that. So I'm going to read to, with you um, Colossians 1, verses 1 to 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers at Christ, in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learnt it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Okay, so, Colossae. Colossae is a town that's in present-day Greece, or sorry, Turkey, and it's inland a little bit. And here's something interesting. No one has ever, ever, ever done any archaeological work on Colossae. It was found 200 years ago, but it sits there as a big lump. And the reason is, well, there's lots of rules and, and laws and things you have to do to, to allow for groups to come in and, and excavate it. And yet, here's what we do know about this place. It was a crown in the jewel of what is called the Phrygian Empire. And we know that because Herodotus in the 5th century BC boasts about it. We know the Persians marched through it on their way to Thermopylae, the Battle of 300, for you men who have watched that movie with greased-up Gerard Butler. And, uh, <laughs> and though I don't know if the movie's quite right, but that's okay. Uh, it, was, it was a prominent city, but just a couple of years before Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, the city was destroyed by an earthquake. And, uh, and after that, as they're rebuilding, and even the years leading up to it, Colossae was losing its, 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 its um, luster a little bit. It had begun to be outshined by two sister cities, Hierapolis and Laodicea. And so it was still a cosmopolitan center, still a center of trade, but it wasn't as, quite as lustrous as it once was. And hopefully in the next few years, we're going to learn even more about the city um, now that they're starting to excavate it. They only started um, in November of this last year. So we'll start hearing more. But here's what we do know. Paul did not plant this church. This church was planted by a guy named Epaphras, who he mentions repeatedly in the letter. And so Paul had actually never even visited the city, as far as we know. So he is writing to this church, a new church, a young church in this area. And although there's always debate... It seems like he's not really attacking one particular thing. Like sometimes he writes to cities and he says, hey, you're dealing with this, you're struggling with that, here's how to deal with it. But in this one he offers, they call, it's called the friendly letter. And the reason is Paul doesn't really get too worked up about much, but he does point out some issues in the church. And he says, you're a young church, kind of like a fatherly advice. You're a young church and as you walk through this world, you're going to have certain troubles, so let me give you some advice as you get going. And it's very simple. The message of the book, because of the sermon title, should, not sermon, the uh, series title, should tell you. He says, Christ is the answer to everything. You know, in Sunday school, what's the answer? Jesus. Um, 
Paul says, that's true, actually. Christ is the answer for everything, Christ alone. And he lifts up Christ really high. And in this opening, Paul does something really interesting. He refers to these three Christian virtues of faith, love, and hope. Commentators say that that is, because Paul does that regularly, that that is Paul's shorthand for what it means to be a Christian. Christians have faith, love, and hope. And although you could say everybody has a degree of faith, love, and hope, the Christian response is not like this. And if you don't have the faith, hope, and love that Paul's going to, to outline here and throughout the, all the Bible and the New Testament, you're actually not a Christian. And so what he's doing here is he is saying to the church, I applaud and thank God that you are Christians. And I know you're a Christian because of this evidence. And the evidence he gives gives us a good outline right at the outset to say, what is a Christian? And, these, and their Christians are people who are marked by these three unique responses to what are hope, faith, and love. And I'll go in that order. And this is only possible, Paul's going to say, and New Testament says, scholars say, the only way to live as a Christian is if there is a resurrection and a miracle. Because by yourself, you will never be the people that God is trying to make you. And if you don't believe it, you don't need to be a Christian. Look at the history of the world. We have to stop thinking we're going to make the world better. That if we had a better leader or a better system, we could make, you know, we just need more socialism, more democracy, better presidents, better prime ministers. No, you don't. We must be the most foolish people in the world. After two, you know, more, thousands and thousands and thousands of years worth of human failure, we still think maybe we'll get it right this time. Um, and it's not true. And the resurrection tells us not only is it not true, but there's a better answer than you trying to fix it all the time. And this is the, this is the response. Now, we'll start with hope. And the reason I'm starting with hope, even if it's the last, th- the last of the three that Paul mentions, is because Paul does something incredible. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, they have faith and love, but they exist because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So you see, he is saying, the only reason you have faith and love is because you have hope. And so what Paul's saying is hope acts as the engine and the fuel for love and faith. And that's why I start with that one. Now, two things we learn. First one is what I just said. Hope comes first. The hope is what fuels your Christian life if you're a Christian. And I'm going to describe what that is in a minute. And the second thing is that hope in a Christian sense is not the hope that a bride has before her wedding when she says, I hope it doesn't rain. See, that sort of a hope is not hope at all. That's a wish, right? That's, that's not based on any sort of truth. It's based on just, you know, kind of wishes, kind of just praying to these, the weather gods, you know, that sort of a thing. And J.I. Packer, a theologian, says it quite nicely. He says this, optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. And the reason Packer can say that is because Christianity, being a Christian, the hope we have, it's it's amazing because Paul says the hope is not in some, uh, it's not some, abstract idea, but hope is actually a thing. See what he says? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. See how he speaks of it? As if the hope is a thing in heaven waiting for you. And the reason he does that is because the hope we have of this, and the hope is very concrete, the Bible says, of an eternity of life with Christ, sinless, sinless life, all that sort of thing. Um, peace, everything. And 
The reason we have such hope, and maybe the best example I can think of is this. When I go onto Facebook Marketplace and I want to buy something, I take the gift and I say to the guy or the gal, I'd like to buy your golf club, and I'm going to pay in advance. So I wire the money, I email transfer them the money, and then no matter what happens after that, I could wait. They may, I may not show up to pick up the golf club for weeks or months, but you know what? They know I'm going to come because I've already paid for it. Because I paid up front, it's mine, and I'm going to come back for it, and they can be rest assured. Don't come tomorrow, no big deal. He paid for it, he'll come. And Christianity says that God came. And when he came, he paid already in full for you and I, for, you, for those who are believers. So the hope we have is in what's promised to us and we know is going to come because it's already been paid for. Yes, it may take him time, more than we'd like. Yes, we may struggle in the midst of it. And yet, it's hope, it's a certainty that we have. And this hope that Christianity brings was, is, is, it remains powerful, but it was so powerful in the, in the Roman world that when this church went from 1,000 people, estimates, at the resurrection who believed, to 33 million 200 years later without social media to push this agenda, when that happens, what is it? What is it that caused Christians to, Christianity to explode across the face of the world, knowing that to be a Christian meant even more so than today, you're going to be mocked, you're going to be losing, you may lose your job, your life, all, your family, everything. And Larry Hurtado is a scholar, and he, he actually wrote a small little book, but it's called, a great title, Why on Earth Would Anyone Ever Want to Become a Christian? And that was his book. And in it, he goes back and he tries to decide what is it? What is it that Christianity brought into the ancient world that caused them, caused everything for this faith to blow up like this, to explode, not just for Christians to survive persecution, but to radically grow in the midst of it. And one of the three things he points out is hope. And this is what is so incredible about what he discovers. In the ancient world, nobody thought about the afterlife. If you believed that you would live forever as in the ancient world, you were considered a child. There was very few religions, there was none really, that said you're going to live forever in peace and there'll be a great world beyond this. At best, they thought there's nothing. Peace because it's dead and nothing, kind of what our secular humanists say today when it'll just be oblivion. Others would say if you gain enough glory for yourself, you'll have wine, women, and song in the afterlife, which is why Achilles rages in the Iliad to, to gain glory for himself. But when Christianity comes, here's what's just mine. Okay, actually, let me say this. Let me sum up the ancient world. There's an inscription found on a grave in Rome, and here's what it says. I was not, I was, I care not. And this sums up the ancient view about eternity. I once, once upon a time, I didn't live. I was not. Then I lived. I was alive and walking the world. And I'm, I'm dead. I don't care. <laughs> it's over. And this was, sums up the ancient view about eternity. So when Christianity comes offering hope, there's something that's very important here. When they say, no, there is an eternity, and you can have it, and there's bliss beyond it, and it'll make up for all of that you're feeling now, as if all the bad things have come untrue. When it says that, Christianity is not coming in to a world that was looking for hope. See? Let me use an example. Um, when you, if you become very wealthy because you invent a great product, I don't know, what's a great product? Um, pet rocks? No. Oh terrible product, but it worked. But um, think of a product, it'd be a, I don't know, um, silly putty? Okay, silly putty, sure. Silly putty comes into the world, and this is what you find. They create, well, I know the story of silly putty a little, but um, so it's silly, okay, that's a bad example. I can't say silly putty this many times in a sermon. 
I don't know what the, let's just say a great example of some product. But here's, here's what we know. You're only going to become wealthy because what you do as an inventor and as an entrepreneur is you develop a product that there is already a market for, right? So you develop, I'm not going to say silly putty. <laughs> you develop a product, I should have thought it's ahead of time. You develop a product and you say, there's a great market out there and I'm going to be the first one to come to market and then my product is meeting a felt need and I'm going to be rich. Christianity comes into an ancient world that had no desire for eternal life. None. It was mocking. It was actually the anti-product. So when it comes, says Larry Hurtado in his studies, he realized Christianity's offer of hope was so powerful that it didn't uncover, it didn't, it didn't meet a felt need. It actually revealed and, and resurrected a hope long buried under human sin. They didn't know they wanted it until it was expressed and they realized, oh my goodness, I was made for this. And it was so powerful, it didn't feed a market, it created a market. And that is radically countercultural. No, nothing else does this. And it was so powerful that it caused people to do all the things I've said and much more. Do you know if you're a baker in Rome and you become a Christian, you may never be able to bake, make money, and your family is destitute. Because to be a baker in Rome, you have to belong to a Roman baker's guild. But to be in the baker's guild of Rome, you have to sacrifice to the patron gods of the baker's. And when you do that, as a Christian, you're contravening scripture. You say you're, you're worshiping other gods. So the Christians would say, I'm not going to do it. And what they're doing by doing that, they had such hope that it affected their present lives in a radical way through faith and love that they said, no, I know I'm going to lose my job. I know I may, my family may be destitute, but I cannot contravene and contradict my Savior because I have a hope. And that hope is more real to me than what you can do to me. Okay, so that was radical. Radical, and it still does. It still does this. And you know why it does it still? Why hope still affects people? Because in Ecclesiastes 3.11, which we're going to preach eventually, it says, God set eternity in the hearts of men. And what it means is when you fell in the garden, you lost the ability to live forever. You lost the privilege, but you didn't lose the desire. And so when the hope of Christ comes to so many people, billions still today, there's something in them that awakens, and they say, gosh, I need that hope. And this is what hope is. Paul says that hope is the furnace that warms the life of a Christian. Okay? So, that is the first point. Sorry, I'm still getting used to wearing glasses and having a headset. This is very strange. All of you with glasses, well done. <laughs> I don't know how you've done it. <laughs> Second, so that hope is the furnace. But then it says it doesn't sit there and just remain for hope for the future. Hope has a present application here and now. And that is... Faith is the first one he mentions. Now, when Paul says that the church in Colossae has this hope that has caused them to be faithful, so he says Christians have hope, and that hope leads to faith, and they had this faith, but it's not a vague faith. He is so clear, so specific about what faith is that I'm going to sound like I'm being exclusive, and that's because I am. Faith in Christ is faith in Christ and not faith in just whatever you want. It's not faith in being a good person, but let me look at what Paul does. He says very clearly, the faith they have is in Jesus, but he uses three different titles for Jesus in this, in this introduction. Jesus, Christ, and Lord. And a Christian believes in Jesus as Jesus, and you're going to see what that means, as what the Bible says of Jesus, as him as Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, and as Lord. And if you do not believe in all three of these, you are not a Christian. And that's okay. You, I mean, it's not okay. It's going to be terrible for you. However, you're free to believe what you want. Make no mistake, there's no vagueness in Christianity. And you're going to see why, why I say that. 
And this is actually sounds, sounds like a harsh thing. It's not. What a glorious thing it is that we're offered in Christ. Let me show you. First, faith is in Jesus. Now, when he says Jesus, this is the humanity. This is the man, the person of Jesus. Now, the person of Jesus is a Jewish man in first century Palestine, right? Who is not just man. Many Christians and many denominations and many people think Jesus was, you know, a great teacher. He's a fortune cookie. He's a good sage. He's, he dispenses wisdom. He's my life coach. And they understand the humanity of Christ, but they deny the divinity of Christ, that he is God and man. Or they go the other way and say, no, no, he was all spirit. He wasn't a man. He's not really suffering on the cross. That's all theatrics. Or they go even further, and this is a rare sort of heresy, but a real one, where they say, no, he's half man, half God, not fully each, but half each. So when he comes together, what he makes is what they call in Latin a tertium quid, a third thing. He's neither, light, he's neither black nor white, he's gray. He's neither light nor darkness, he's twilight. And as a result, that's not Christ. Christ is fully both. If you don't believe that Christ was fully man, who when he endures the cross and separation, he suffers as man, then you have a, a deficient, a, an anemic faith. If you think he is not fully God dying, you don't understand that no human could have lived a perfect life to atone for your sins. And so you need one who is both man and God fully, without diminishment, without mingling. And I know that's a deep thing. Take my classes on Thursdays, and we'll cover this in at great detail. So that's the first thing. You must believe in him as both. And I know many Christians and many people who have walked away from the faith, if you were raised in the church, come away thinking this, especially when they say things like, you know, I love Jesus, but I'm not so sure about the church. You know, these are full of rotten people. We're going to talk about that in a minute too. So first, you have to have faith in Christ as the God-man. Second, or in Jesus. Second thing is Jesus as Christ. Now, Christ is a very specific term. It is the Jewish Messiah in all of its, all of its richness. And what the Jews say about the Messiah is very simple. The Christ will come to bear your iniquities. You're a sinner, you're a rebel, says the Bible, that we all fell away from God. And as a result, we owe the king our lives. And then, it only, the only possible way to get us back to being face to face with God is if God himself comes and sends his Messiah, his chosen one, who will come and live the life you couldn't, die the death you couldn't, and take the punishment you deserve so you can get the reward he deserves. And so when he says that the church in Colossae believes in Christ, do you understand it means that you have to admit and accept the fact that you're a sinner in need of grace? You're a sinner. That nothing, nothing, nothing you could do, doesn't matter if you have a beautiful saintly old grandmother who knits you doilies and gives you a hook chest full of, of, of dish towels. That's what my grandma did when you get married because every man needs a hope chest, hope chest full of towels. <laughs> doesn't matter how wonderful you think you are, you're a sinner. And that's very difficult for this world to get. And there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians in the world and in the churches who will say they're Christian. And too many of us don't challenge them on it. And I don't want to be, it's not about being harsh, it's about saying, if Christ isn't your savior, he's nothing to you. He's just a good, all he is then is a life coach, right? He's somebody whose advice you can take or not. And I'm going to use an example of somebody here, and I'm not going to put the picture up yet, who was a politician. People revere him in the in south of the border, and some people maybe even in this room. I'm making no claim about his political views. You've heard me about this already. I will, however, attack his views about God. Not politics. That's not my issue. But when somebody says something about God, I have to, as a shepherd, 
And as the person who you've entrusted to help you, I have to tell you when this person is wrong so that you're not misled. And when Donald Trump was interviewed by a Christian and was asked, who is Jesus to you and have you asked for forgiveness? This was his response. Jesus to me is somebody I can think about for security and confidence. Somebody I can revere in terms of bravery and in terms of courage and because I consider the Christian religion so important, somebody I can totally rely on in my own mind. I'm not sure I have asked for forgiveness from God. I just go on and try to do better. I think if I do something wrong, I just try to make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. I don't care what you think who you vote for. Well, you don't vote for him. You're Canadians. I don't care. That's not the point. That is not a Christian's testimony. It's very simple. Too many people who claim to be Christians say, I love Jesus. I follow everything he does, but I don't have anything to repent of. The moment you do that, you say, you do not honor him as Christ. You, <laughs> I thought how much clearer I can be. If God isn't one who died for your sins, then he's no better to you than Jordan Peterson or Oprah or Confucius or anyone else. He is Christ or he is nothing to you. Simple. I know it sounds harsh, doesn't it? And I'm sorry, Easter is that time, but I feel like I have to make it clear. And bless him. Trump, I hope this has changed since he read this. I hope he's a born-again believer. Maybe he was all along. He didn't know how to articulate it. But that is not the statement of a Christian. Don't know how else to say it. So your Christians trust in Christ and as Jesus and as Jesus as the Christ. And lastly, he is Lord. Faith. If he is Lord, he is Lord. Right? You obey a Lord. He's not again a life coach. You say, you know what? I don't like that advice this week. No, he's Christ the Lord. And what Paul does is really interesting here. He uses a word. He says, when you became Christians, it's because you heard and you understood the gospel. That's what he says. And the word for understood is this Greek word called ginosko. And when he says that, that word that means know or understand is used again by a different writer, John, in one of his letters. And listen to what John says. And I've underlined when he uses that word ginosko so you can see what Paul's implying. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so, Paul is brilliant. He is saying, you came to hear the gospel, and then you came to know the gospel. And by knowing, it doesn't mean intellectually understanding it. We're pro we Protestants are prone to mistakes where we think because you understand the theology, you trust the theology. But Paul's saying, no, if you know him, it's easy. You're following him. And he says to the Colossians, I see by the way you're loving for one another and loving everybody that you understood the gospel. And this is important because it doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter how, how fine your words are. It doesn't even matter how much your actions are. Are, are good for people. If you do not seek to obey Christ and honor him, you're first, you may not be a Christian, and if you are a Christian, good news is there is hope because he knows you're going to sin. And in fact, John actually will say, when you sin, there is a mediator for you. But Christians honor Christ. As he's Jesus, God and man. He is Christ, your substitute. And he is Lord. He's there to be obeyed for, simply. And then Paul not only says what that is, those three things, faith, hope, or, uh, faith, but then he says, this is how you become a faithful Christian. And this is going to be challenging because Paul's pretty clear about this over and over. He says, the first thing is, he says, the gospel came to you in Colossae, meaning they weren't looking for Christ. 
right? They weren't groping for the Jewish Messiah. They weren't. They were just living. They may have been hoping for a better life. They may have thought there's something beyond this life. There may have been a sense of the supernatural, but they weren't looking for the Messiah of Israel. He says, the Messiah of Israel had to come to you, and it came to you in the preaching of Epaphras. So he says, when you heard it, it came to you and you heard it. And this is very important. All through scripture, Romans 10 especially, it says very clearly, the gospel has to be proclaimed with the mouth, okay? And then has to be understood and heard. But the mouth is important. And I've said this before, and I don't mean to be too harsh, but uh, there's a, a guy, um, Francis of Assisi, who said a very famous, very, I think very foolish thing. He said, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. I'm sorry, Francis. You never, you do, you, that's not right. Here's why I know it. He, I know what he meant. The gospel can be, has, has implications. If you are a Christian, it should result, as Paul says, in love and in acts of good, of works, of good works and so on. That's true. However, it doesn't matter if I hold a door open for you or give you a kidney. Those acts will never, ever, ever proclaim the gospel to you because even if I give you a kidney, you may think, wow, why would this person do that? But what you'll never come away thinking or, or knowing is this. I am a sinner who rebelled against the God of Israel. I am in need of a substitute, and Christ came to be that substitute. And if I trust in him, I'll have eternal life. That never gets communicated by opening a door, ever. It can't. And that's why scripture is adamant. The, script, the gospel came to you through the faithful teaching of Epaphras. I don't know why God's done this. I, well, I have an idea. Why is it that God has said, I'm going to save people, I'm going to reveal the ones of faith through the preaching of my faithful people? I don't know exactly why, but for whatever reason, that's what he's done. He says that we must proclaim the gospel, not just show it, proclaim it. And, said, and then, of course, it'll be understood. And what has to be understood? I've just talked about it. But Paul also says, the day you heard it and understood the grace of God. You'll never understand the grace of God unless you know you're a sinner. You'll never know that you, you'll never submit to chemotherapy unless you know you have cancer. And so the first step is always, do you know you actually need a savior? Because if, unless you do, you'll always think that Easter and Good Friday is butchery, it's, it's antiquated, it's primitive, it's bloody, it's, I mean, we've heard it called divine child's, child abuse, where God serves up his son. And those are the sorts of things that when I know when you say it, I know what you mean, but it shows to me you have not heard or understood. And that's okay, I get it. But you're not understanding Christianity rightly when you say that. Now, it's going to get nice, now it's going to get a little more happy. The third one is love. And when he speaks about love here, Paul's very specific. He's, and he, I have to elaborate on him because Paul will elaborate on what Christian love is in other letters. But here he says very, very specifically, he is thankful of the love that you have for all the saints, meaning for the church. That Christians, first and foremost, it's bigger than this, not only this, but it's certainly not less than this, it is love for the church. And this is why earlier I said, if you're a Christian who says, I don't need to be at church I love Jesus, but not his people. Listen, if I'm a pastor. I understand exactly what you mean. I do. However, however, it also shows that you don't understand God at all. Because as pockmarked and sin-riddled as the church is, it's the only body Christ has, and he loves it. So I am to love it. And I'll tell you, I've said this before, it's even more practical. How many husbands would go to their wives and say, I love you, but not your body? Who wants to say that? Any husbands? Wives seem to have no problem saying it. Anyway, sorry, I'm just joking. Zing. 
I'm going to get an email about that one. <laughs> Or a talk on the ride home. Um, <laughs> I'm looking for a ride to Ridgeway, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, but no. But you see, you see, it sounds so ridiculous, it's true. Christ says, this is my body. Yes, it's imperfect, but he loves it. He died for it. So when we say, I don't love the body, I love Jesus and his teachings. And I'll just sit at home, I'll watch sermons online. I do, we understand, everybody in this room understands that. But it's not biblical. God wants us to love each other. And one of the marks that we are Christians is that, we, that people will know how we treat each other. That in this building, in this family, this community, we treat each other differently. We think about sex differently than the world. We think about money differently than the world. We think about unity differently than the world. We don't hear uh, cancel you because you said the wrong thing. Even if you've done the wrong thing, there may be discipline, but there's restoration. And we hear, we're here to model that for the world. But the love even expands further. And this, again, we turn back to that guy, Larry Hurtado, who studied the early church, and he said this. One of the second things, I won't be able to do all three, um, that marked the growth of the church wasn't big preaching. You know, we get the impression that it was great evangelists, the Billy Grahams of the world that expanded the church. But sociologists like him and Rodney Stark, these guys say, no, no, that wasn't how it grew. The way it grew was actually through Christians being Christians, just loving each other and loving the world. And here's, let me use some examples. First, in the Roman world, um, here's, again, one of the ways, if you're, if you're a skeptic and you think Christianity has only brought in bad things to the world, you need to read a history book. And I'm not trying to be facetious, but it shows a great ignorance because of this. In the Roman world, if you were to come, which the Christians did, and say, we should sacrifice our own self-interest to lift up the poor, do you understand how you would have been mocked for that? Because there's a few things happening. One, there's the patronage system, right? The idea that I only invite you to a party because I'm hoping you'll invite me to your party. Tit for tat. But even worse, underlying all that, was the Christians received criticism when they started serving the poor because people said, what are you doing? You're actually contradicting the gods. Because if the gods wanted that poor man to be wealthy, he would have made him wealthy. So what you're actually doing is contravening the, 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 the gods. So the Christians come in with an ethic that is completely, again, radical. The fact that we value people who serve the poor today is a Christian idea, not a secular one. And if someone says to me, well, are you telling me we wouldn't have come to that on our own conclusion? This is what I'll say. I'm a man of history and of study. I don't know how things might have happened. I just know how they did happen. It did happen this way, that Christians are the ones who made the world this way. And if you don't believe it, look at those nations that didn't have a Christian foundation and look at how their democracy is holding up. Look at how the rights of women and of the marginalized look in those countries. I'm not, it's not about race. Christianity is what brought these things into the world. And here are some examples of that. There's um, a man named Dionysus, Dionysius, and he was a Christian, but he writes a letter in 260 about the, the plagues that were ravaging the Roman Empire, and here's what he says. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never spare, uh, sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. So, ancient writers, this is a Christian, but still I'm going to quote non-Christians in a minute, make it clear what Christians did, the way the church grew, and it's, it's simple mathematics. Imagine you're a Roman, you have 10 friends. Um, the plague hits. We know that 50% of people left Rome when the plague hit because it was a death trap. So five of your friends are gone. You have five friends now, okay? 
we know that about three of those were killed by the plague. That leaves you two. We also know that Christians, for two reasons, didn't leave Rome at the same rate as everybody else. One, biblically, they said they shouldn't. They should be there to care. Two, because they were being marginalized, they couldn't leave. They had no money. So we also know from all of these, and not just this, there's emperors who wrote letters, and I'll quote them in a minute, who said the Christians were helping people. If that's the case, and you have the plague, and we now know that if the plague had simply, those people with the plague had received water and sleep, 80% would have lived. If you are a person with a plague and you are nursed back to health by one of those Christians and then your five other friends come back, you have seven friends, which were your closest friends now? The Christians. Because they're the ones who didn't run. They're the ones who nursed you. And this, says a guy named Rodney Stark, a sociologist at Biola, same with Larry Hurtado. I think he's retired now, but he's in Liverpool. All say, this is how the church grew, by being Christians and loving people, even to the point of sacrifice of themselves. But let's not take Christian witness only. Let's look at what the skeptics say. We have an emperor named Julian. He's writing, and I'll leave this up here a second. I'll, I'll get to his quote. Julian is an emperor, and he realizes that Christians are gaining ground and growing. And he, we have collections of his letters to priests, his pagan priests, not the Christians. And he's hammering them. And um, again, don't bring the quote up yet. I'll bring it up in a second. But he says in smaller bits, he says they're growing because of their moral character, even if pretended. So he says, you know, even if they're pretending, I don't know, but because of what they're doing, they're, they're growing. These Galileans, he called them. And, and he said also, in a smaller part, their benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead are impacting them. Meaning that they not only cared for strangers, but they would go to the graves of people who died and they would clean up the graves. They would put flowers at the graves of people they didn't know. And their care for people was moving people to become Christian. And then he writes to another priest, and this is what he wrote. I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, meaning his own priests, the impious Galileans observed this, and they devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. So we have now an early emperor, not a believer, who's saying, guys, the Christians are living a way that we are not, and that's why they're growing. We've got to do better, you know? And the fact that we have this testimony from people who are enemies of the church tell us that Paul was right, that the hope they had made them willing to sacrifice, made them willing to die. And this was vital to the growth of the church, the hope they had, the faith they showed, as exclusive as it is. You know, one of the other things that that the letters show us is that Christians weren't sharing their wedding beds, it says. So they weren't sleeping around. They weren't spending their money like everybody else. They weren't worshiping like everybody else. They lived counterculturally in the world. And so here at Redeemer, when we start to talk about what does it mean to be a person working in a secular world that hates our religion, hates who we are, and is increasingly hostile to us, let's not run from it. Let's stay and figure out and do the hard work of figuring out how, does it, how do we remain faithful here? And how do we love them even when they don't love us? And the only way, and this is where I'll close, is... The resurrection. The only thing that could have sustained people. Now, people are strong-willed. You know, you can give up smoking, you can lose weight, you can do a lot of things through your will. But even if you're a skeptic, you're going to have to admit that the entire world was changed by a madman if you don't think Christ is who he says he was. And if you think he wasn't raised from the dead, I understand, because it is miraculous. That's what, what they call it, a miracle. But 
there's a lot of reasons why people do believe in it. And if you simply disregard the resurrection, then you're, you're intellectually lazy. <laughs> you know, you do the hard work. Try to figure it out. And then also at least say, why have billions of people believe this? Some of the most intelligent people in the history of the world have believed this. Dozens of our, our more modern Nobel Prize winners identify as Christians. So why? And let me just say a couple of things, that reasons that I find the resurrection persuasive. And no particular order. The first one is, have you noticed it's only women who, rec- who, who see it? You want pick that up there? Sorry. I just spilled something. My kid. In the, in the Gospels, it's always women who see the resurrection. Now, this is why that is compelling. In the ancient world, women couldn't vote. They couldn't uh, be witnesses in law. They had no rights. And so if you're trying to build a case for the truth of a lie, what you're going to do is say, you know who saw it? The emperor saw it. The greatest philosophers, the wealthy, the smart, they're the ones who saw it. What you're not going to say is a woman who has no value in this culture, she's the one who saw it. It's actually an insult and a shame to, the, to Christianity to, to make this claim. And scholars across the board will say the only reason they, reason they would admit that is if it was true. Because otherwise, why would they do it? If you're lying, you're going to make a better lie than that. That's one thing. Two, of course, there's just witnesses. Paul, all these eyewitnesses, you'll notice in the Gospels, they name people all the time. And the idea being, here's their names. You know them. They're still alive. Go talk to them. In fact, when the Apostle Paul is standing in, in before Festus, the Roman governor at the end, near the end of Acts, and his king, he says to them, I know it looks stupid to you, a Roman, what I'm saying about the resurrection, but ask the king, he's a Jew, you know that none of this was done in a corner. That's what he says. Meaning, I'm not making, you were all alive. You saw it. He's drawing attention to things that actually happened. I know we're 2,000 years apart. But when we deny the ancient record for this, but not for the existence of Julius Caesar, we have much more evidence of the existence and the resurrection than we do for Julius Caesar's life or for Homer's Iliad. You're showing an intellectual bias. Just admit it. Just admit the fact that you don't want it to be true, so you're denying, you're breaking common rules of logic that you would accept everywhere else. I did it. I understand it. And I'll say the very last reason I find it compelling. I can go to uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and see Elvis's uh, grave, right? In fact, you can go just about anywhere and see just about anyone's grave. You can see Buddhas. You can see Muhammad's. You can see all these graves. But when you go to Israel, you have a lot of people telling you, here's where we think Jesus died, right? And there's, I remember I talked about this before. There's a movie, Stand By Me. And um, in it, a boy dies, and his parents never get over it because he's the good son they liked. And the room of that son, they never change. He dies, but they leave the room looking the way it was when he died. It becomes a shrine. Now, if Christ had died, you wouldn't go to Israel now and have a million people telling you where Jesus is buried, where it was buried. But the reason that there is no shrine, the reason we don't know where he's buried, but you do know where Muhammad and Buddha and everybody else, Karl Marx, all of them are buried, is because nobody thought Jesus was dead. You wouldn't make a shrine of a tomb if he's not dead. And so, the most compelling thing I see is that, why wouldn't they have made a shrine to him? And they don't. And there's so much more. So much more. And ultimately, it leads to this. Tim Keller ends with this, this quote. And it's, it's the Easter, for, for the skeptic, at least this. If he rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And that's the question I leave with every skeptic. 
in the room who is, on, is questioning it. I understand. I do. But don't make it about what he taught. You know, people are like, oh, I don't like what he taught about gender. That's a modern problem. If he is Lord, he is Lord. If he is Lord, you are wrong, not him. CNN is wrong, not, you, not him. Is he Lord? That's the question. If you're a Christian, rejoice. He's risen. He's Christ. Son, he's a man, God. He died for you, and you have an eternity. And this is why, and I, I've used it before, and I, this I'll really close. And I love the example, even though, and only the people who know Super Mario Brothers will know this. Who knows Super Mario Brothers? Remember that game? Yeah, you kids all know it still. Am I a kid? Is that what's happening? Um, in, in the old Super Mario Brothers on the Nintendo, I was a kid, and I knew how to get uh, free, un, unlimited free men, free lives. Right? You jump on the, 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 on the shell in just the right spot. And eventually you keep getting men, one up, one up, one up. And I'll tell you this, when I knew, when I had 100 free men in that game, oh, I was brave. Right? Because I couldn't die. So what I would do is I'd jump over stuff you could never jump over. I would fight things I could never fight. I would do things I would never do because I knew I couldn't lose. And that is what Christianity does to you and I. When you know that you can't lose, die of cancer when you're a five-year-old, die of old age, get hit by a bus, die in a war, get mocked with your life, lose everything, you cannot lose. You can't lose. And that gives you a boldness. You're willing to look like a fool in the culture. That's okay. You're willing to. And that is what Paul is applauding in the Colossians. He's saying, because you believed in the resurrection, because you believed in the hope that you have laid up for you in heaven, that's why you're living like this. That's why you're loving your enemies. And you'll never do it on your own. Without the resurrection, at best you have the lion's club. That's all you have. A bunch of people trying to be nice. But there's limits. But the resurrection is an unbounded goodness because of unbounded goodness showed for us on the cross. He is risen. Let's pray.